Hello, my name is Grace Sanford. I am from Laura Meyerson's Restoration Ecology class at the University of Rhode Island. And today I'm going to be interviewing Gary Casabona, a wildlife biologist at the NRCS with the USDA. So Gary, what exactly is your job title and what does the basic summary of what you do entail? Okay, so I'm the biologist for NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service for Rhode Island. Uh, many federal agencies are structured on a, on a regional basis, but we're structured on a state-by-state -state basis. So we do you know, soil and water conservation projects, and that's been our history mm. ever since 1935. But my job now is to work on any projects that are related to wildlife habitat okay. management. Okay, great. So I'm sure that translates into any restoration projects you may have. As a segue to that, how long have you been working more towards restoration projects in general? I've been working for NRCS for 21 years now, mm -hmm. but I did my master's on wildlife habitat ecology and GIS. Okay. So for many years I worked predominantly in GIS, but you could probably say I've been involved in restoration for 20 to 25 years wow. now, including graduate school. Yeah, so you have quite a bit of experience with it. That's great. Did you have any formal training with restoration projects specifically, or was it more so just integrated into what you ended up working on? Well, I would say it's integrated because it's it's sort of a natural part of what NRCS does. Mm. You know, we were the former Soil Conservation Service mm -hmm. created in response to the Dust Bowl. So really, you, know, you could say that much of what we do is restoration-related. Mm. Um, just by nature. Just by, by the nature of okay. what the agency does. I'll draw the distinction between agencies that manage their own lands, federal lands, state lands, mm. where maybe they're managing ecologically sensitive areas mm. and doing very careful restorations. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes with us, we're working on a working farm yep. or forest land. So we're managing some large acres mm. and often taking sort of a broad brush approach to that. Oh, okay. and, and of course, we're working with private landowners on mm. a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. So unlike a lot of uh, friends and colleagues who work for state agencies or the Forest Service or Fish and Wildlife Service or the Park Service, mm. where they're managing their own lands, mm -hmm. Part of the game with us is convincing private landowners or agricultural producers mm. to do certain things. Yeah, so you're sort of like opening up a new window for restoration that may not be like greatly accessible for the other organizations. Right, nice. right. And, and again, with us, that human dimensions aspect mm. um, of convincing landowners to do certain things. Um, even which may involve some out-of-pocket expenses. Mm -hmm. So then my next question is going to be, do you have a few like examples that stand out for you personally of projects you've worked on in New England? Uh, one thing that's certainly uh, unique to New England is the work we do for New England Cottontail. Oh, yes, yes. So there what we're doing is you know, not a clear cut. You know, of course, that, that sort of has a connotation of these giant clear cuts out west. Mm -hmm. Um, it, what we do here is we call it a clear cut with reserves or a seed tree cut mm -hmm. where we go in, we cut anywhere from 10 to 25 acre size projects that we've done in Rhode Island. 
um, leaving 10 or 12 uh, large crowned oaks as seed trees to produce mm-hmm. acorns for, for new oaks. And these areas regenerate into uh, flowering and fruiting native shrubs, and that provides forage for New England cottontail, mm-hmm. particularly during the winter months. Mm-hmm. When it's very important because when, they're competing with the other species, correct? Right. And, of course, rabbits don't hibernate, mm-hmm. so they have to sort of survive on you know, remnants mm-hmm. of leaves, twigs, buds, etc. Whatever's any, left Whatever's over, left yeah. in the landscape. Uh-huh. So part of the reason that we do regenerating forests for them is that this forage is then accessible from ground level that, our, that a rabbit can reach. Um, but these projects also benefit songbirds, which has always been, that's what I studied in graduate mm-hmm. school, and that's always been my passion. So, um, and one other example that's related to New England is uh, we do some restoration activities on salt marshes. Um, other organizations like uh, the Coastal Resources Management Council and Save the Bay are mm-hmm. doing great work also, um, and we work in concert with them mm-hmm. at times. Um, but those projects involve essentially restoration of hydrology that's been mm-hmm. altered in these salt marshes where you have ponding of water, you have mm-hmm. vegetation die off, and this is affecting um, wildlife habitat mm-hmm. in the marshes. So. Uh, one aspect of that would be salt marsh sparrow, mm-hmm. which is becoming increasingly of concern. So that, again, would be something unique to New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. It's very interesting because it seems like the coastal projects in New England can sort of have like global implications for maybe predicting sea level rise, effects on low-level marshes as sea levels rising. Would you agree that that's maybe could be an implication we could learn from like just small-scale projects in New England? Oh, definitely, definitely. And it's, um, it's opening the door for creative thinking. Mm. Uh, the thin layer deposition is mm-hmm. one example of that. Another example is um, there's documentation now where many projects that have been deemed a success in terms of restoring hydrology Mm -hmm. at least to an extent and bringing back native salt marsh vegetation at least to an extent. Mm -hmm. And we're still not seeing salt marsh sparrows nesting Mm. in those areas. So there's a lot of uncertainty still and a lot of room for... I think, collaboration among agencies yeah. and creative uh, solutions. Overall, how do you think ecological restoration can promote ecosystem resilience under global climate change? So I know we discussed, sort of touched on it before with the um, sea level rise example, but are there any more like broad-reaching implications that you've personally come to the conclusion? Talking with colleagues about this recently, and and we sort of came to the conclusion that everything that NRCS has been doing since back in the 30s, Mm. mitigating soil erosion, um, whether wind erosion or Mm. water erosion, the classic thing that that the agency was doing way, way back, um, those things all promoted resilience even Mm. before any sort of discussions of climate change. But from my perspective and the concept of resilience, the best example, I think, is the way that we approach the pollinator seedings or plantings of trees and shrubs. 
uh, naturally we look at soils. Mm -hmm. We look at whether a site is wet or dry or, or makes it. Mm -hmm. But in the larger sense, what we're doing, um, and the specific example would be a seed mix, for example, for mm -hmm. pollinators, which is going to include some native grasses, a lot of different flowering forbs, and some legumes. And what we try to do there is, number one, we're trying to have blooms across the whole growing season. Mm -hmm. We want to have early and middle and late blooming plants mm -hmm. for, uh, for the obvious reason of sustaining insects throughout uh, the flight season or yeah. the growing season. But the other thing is to have a fairly long list of species that we seed because this way there's always some uncertainty about which plants are going to do well or not do well on a site. Mm. And of course, you don't know if next summer's a big drought or yeah. not, or if it's going to be flooding. So just by <clears throat> having a, a, a broad diversity mm. of seed plants that we're um, propagating, that in itself will give some, some resilience. So my final question for you today is, uh, what resources and advice would you have for students or new graduates from uh, this field hoping to work in restoration? Uh, what would be your biggest piece of advice for them? I'd say the single biggest thing, especially uh, maybe in terms of any employment, but especially in terms of getting a job with a federal agency, mm -hmm. the single most magical thing is to be willing to relocate. If people want to start working for any number of federal natural resource agencies, and there are many, uh, the Forest Service, the Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, USGS, NRCS, uh, the other USDA agencies, there are many of them. Um, if you're willing to relocate uh, to another part of the country, mm. that's a giant thing. Mm. Um, a lot of times people don't want to or can't yeah. for some personal reason. Um, so that's a big one. Mm -hmm. um, the other big one, um, and I actually did some of this even after finishing graduate school in order to keep my sort of field credentials up, is to volunteer mm -hmm. at various times in your career mm -hmm. to be willing to do work for nothing. Mm -hmm. In wildlife, there's often situations where there are summer internships that may be little to no pay, there may be housing, mm -hmm. there may be a small stipend, and in some cases, it's you know completely volunteer work. Mm -hmm. But I think most people, when they see that on a resume, it has heavy weight, because it signals that the person is really willing to make sacrifices in order to advance their career and distinguish themselves mm -hmm. from the many, many good people that mm -hmm. come out of every university natural resource program. Mm -hmm. So those are the two uh, really big things. I often get asked by people finishing their bachelor's, you know, should I work first or mm -hmm. should I go on to grad school right away? I want to mm -hmm. at least do a master's. And I think it depends on the person. Mm. You know, my answer there is if you really know with some specificity what you really love, and, and not that you have to be razor sharp, mm. but to have a pretty good sense of what aspect of the field of natural resources you want to be in, mm -hmm. if you've got that, and you've been 
looking at graduate programs, talking to professors, mm-hmm. trying to find a connection mm-hmm. with a major professor, then I'd say, by all means, if the opportunity's there, then do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a little more uncertain, maybe you have you know, a couple of different broad interests within mm-hmm. natural resources, then maybe you work for a couple of years mm-hmm. and try to figure that out. Fine-tune your interests in a way. Right. Right. And I think the other thing, uh, especially in the last 20 years or so, and I think geographic information systems is a a great example Mm. of this, you want to have a sense of whether you're, you know, a GIS or lab person Mm -hmm. and you really like that, or whether you can handle the rigors of the field, mm. extremes of heat and cold and biting insects and snakes and spiders and, you know, long days and all of that. Mm. I think some people come out of their undergrad programs and maybe aren't quite sure mm. about that. So that's important as well. Yeah, it seems to be a very, like, unique thing about this um, field of study is we're out in the field, we're in labs, we're doing computer software. It's very, like, Broad, we're covering a lot of different like forms of study, so it just seems to be a very unique thing about this um, field, like the field of restoration in general. Right, you know, you've got um, the DNA wildlife DNA yeah. lab here mm-hmm. at URI. You've got great GIS folks here, GIS professors, mm-hmm. and yeah, I've really seen it over the last twenty twenty five years since I was in graduate school mm-hmm. that. Those things were sort of on the side, and now they're, you know, right mainstream. Yeah. So you can choose to sort of go one way or the other, mm-hmm. or to have a melding of the two. Mm-hmm. But again, the two biggest things, I think, is if you're willing to move, mm-hmm. is the most, most helpful, because in normal times, at least, there are always federal jobs out there. Yeah. And sometimes they're in locations that, you know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't consider a prime location. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you have a job in federal service, you can move around different agencies and so forth. So it's just getting that first job. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. Yeah. I think you've provided some great expertise on the subject. And thank you very much for being here and doing the podcast with me. Um, so this concludes our podcast for the Society of ecological restoration in the New England chapter. Thank you very much for being with me here today and for sharing your expertise and your experience. Well, glad to do it, Grace. Mm-hmm. If it can help out, I know I know young folks these days face a lot of challenges, mm-hmm. I think more so than my generation. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to help.